Leo Tolstoy was born in the Tula Governorate in the Russian Empire in 1828 on a property called Yasnaya Polyana, which is about three hours driving south of Moscow. And this property, this house and the surrounding land that it's on is where Tolstoy was born. It's where he wrote both War and Peace and Anna Karenina. He's buried near the house. He called it his inaccessible literary stronghold. The whole estate includes the mansion that he lived in, the schools that he founded for peasant children, and a park where he is buried. And from what I can see from photos, it appears that he doesn't even have a gravestone. It's just a mound. But it might be that there are two graves. One of them is marked, and that's where he's buried, and one is another thing. I don't know. I couldn't quite figure that part out. Anyway, when he was living on the property, it was 4,000 acres mostly of dense forest, and he wrote War and Peace there between 1862 and 1869, and wrote Anna Karenina there between 1873 and 1877. He wrote them, of course, by hand, and he had very small handwriting, and he was often adding and removing things, and at the end of the day, he would give the draft of what he had done that day to his wife, and then he would rewrite it again the next day. And each chapter reportedly went through five or six drafts, and his wife, Sophia, recopied the book an estimated seven times before it was finished. She usually did this at night, by candlelight, after the children and servants had gone to bed, and she sometimes had to use a magnifying glass because Tolstoy's handwriting was so small. And the Tolstoy family was a notable noble family in Russia, and he was born to this big estate, and he had plenty of money, so you wonder why was he writing so small? Was it a modesty thing? He didn't want to waste paper. It was probably at least partially that. But also, if you imagine planning this massive book, modern editions of which come in at over 1,300 pages, writing in large or small handwriting might make quite a difference in the end in how much paper you ended up using. But Tolstoy had 13 children, of whom four died in childhood, and all were born at the estate. And when he was living and working there, he would wake up at 7 a.m., do some physical exercise and walk in the park before he started writing. And during the harvest season, he would often work in the fields with the peasants who were working the land, both for physical exercise and to gain experience that would make his writing about peasant life more realistic. He often had guests at the estate, and his guests included Chekhov, Turgenev, and the painter Ilya Repin. The estate was nationalized in 1921 and became a museum and nature reserve. As of 2023, the museum director was the wife of Tolstoy's great-great-grandson, Vladimir Tolstoy. Her name is Ekaterina. And Vladimir was himself the director of the museum for 18 years from 1994 to 2012. And since then, he has been an advisor to President Putin on cultural affairs. The museum has a lot of Tolstoy's personal items in it and his library of 22,000 volumes. But we immediately got sidetracked and started talking about the property. So now to get back to Tolstoy's life, he was the fourth of five children. His father was a veteran of the War of 1812, the European one, not the American one, of course. In 1844, when he would have been about 16, he started studying law and oriental languages at Kazan University. But his teacher said that he was both unable and unwilling to learn. He dropped out, went home, spent much of his time in Moscow, Tula, and St. Petersburg, mostly just hanging out. And it was during that period that he started writing, 
including his first novel, which is called Childhood, and is a fictitious account of his own childhood. By 1851, so now he's about 23, he's gotten into a lot of debt from gambling, and he and his older brother went to the Caucasus and joined the army. He was an artillery officer in the Crimean War and was in Sevastopol during the 11-month siege of that location in 1854 and 1855, which also included the Battle of Chernaya. And he was recognized for his courage and promoted to lieutenant, so he saw some combat. This experience and two trips around Europe in 1857 and 1860 and 61 appears to have matured him a lot. Before that, he was a rich young guy who was running up gambling debts and not doing too much in particular. And after that, he started to have ideas about nonviolence and about what we would today call spiritual anarchism. On that latter trip around Europe, he met Victor Hugo and also Joseph Proudhon, and he reviewed a piece of writing that Proudhon had coming out called War and Peace. And this, of course, was later used for his much more well-known novel. Tolstoy was very inspired by this trip, and he came back to his estate, and that was when he founded 13 schools for peasant children who had only that year, in 1861, been emancipated from serfdom. That's a topic that came up when we were looking at Turgenev. If you want to learn a bit more about the historical context there, you can check out that episode as well. And I want to talk a little bit more about Sophia, Tolstoy's wife, because I'm always interested in husband and wife teams that work on creative projects together. That's always inspiring. And of course, as I mentioned, Sophia was an important organizer and editor, at least a copy editor for War and Peace. And that was relatively early in their marriage. And unfortunately, their marriage was notoriously unhappy, though that war and peace period was earlier, so presumably it was going a bit better at that time. But later in life, Tolstoy had a kind of spiritual reawakening and got very into Christianity and wanted to give away all of his possessions, including the copyrights on his works up to that time, which included both War and Peace and Anna Karenina, and his wife was not interested in that. But she had become interested in the new art of photography, and she took over a thousand photos that showed her life and the period that she was living in toward the end of the Russian Empire. And she also kept a series of detailed diaries that were published in English in the 1980s, and she wrote her memoirs as well. And this is the first Tolstoy that I've read, so I don't want to say anything really general about him or his writing. But after having read What is Art, I realized I definitely have to read more Tolstoy, because I found this short text to be extremely lucid and readable. I don't necessarily agree with everything that he says in there, but he makes his argument clearly. And the topic of art itself and trying to define what art is, is among the most ethereal topics you can think of, about which it would be the easiest to write in a fluffy way where you're not really saying anything in particular, or you're making your point opaque. And even on this topic, Tolstoy is very clear. What he means is always clear. And I mentioned earlier that he went through a kind of spiritual awakening in which he turned toward Christianity in the late 1870s, so he would have been around 50 years old. And apparently later in life, he felt that war and peace was aristocratic art. And I don't know exactly what he would have meant by that, but it sounds like, as we'll see as we get into this text, he wouldn't have considered his own writing War and Peace to be true art, though I'm not sure. But he articulates a very specific definition of what true art is, and almost nothing meets it. Now, the trouble is you could also say that if he had had this ideology much earlier, 
then we maybe would have never had war and peace. So then you wonder, what's the value of this kind of ideology? And this book, What is Art, was published in 1897. So he would have been approaching 70. So this was toward the end of his life. And it can probably be taken as his final thoughts on this topic, though he would live on until 1910. But this is another book where I had trouble cutting down material that I wanted to show you. So the result is I have about twice as much as I need, approximately. I've developed a sense of about how much quoted text I need to talk about, and I have way too much this time. So what's probably going to happen is I'm just going to stop at a certain point, and hopefully much of his argument will be clear by then. It might not be totally fleshed out, and we might have to skip over some of his interesting thoughts. But if you're interested in this topic, in this question, I think this is required reading. It's a very interesting little book. But now we can get into some passages. Tolstoy writes, quote, Criticism, in which the lovers of art used to find support for their opinions, has latterly become so self-contradictory that if we exclude from the domain of art all that to which the critics of various schools themselves deny the title, there is scarcely any art left. The artists of various sects, like the theologians of the various sects, mutually exclude and destroy themselves. Listen to the artists of the schools of our time, and you will find in all branches each set of artists disowning others." End quote. So he starts with a survey of the history of aesthetics as a field of philosophy. What have different people said about what is beauty? And he goes one by one over a lot of different writers. So if you're interested in that topic too, this is a nice index of writers you can look at. Though what he mostly says is these guys all contradict each other and they don't end up at any conclusion. This is how he's setting up the question that he's going to answer. He later writes, quote, What is this beauty which forms the subject matter of art? How is it defined? What is it? As is always the case, the more cloudy and confused the conception conveyed by a word, with the more aplomb and self-assurance do people use that word, pretending that what is understood by it is so simple and clear that it is not worthwhile even to discuss what it actually means. This is how matters of orthodox religion are usually dealt with, and this is how people now deal with the conception of beauty. It is taken for granted that what is meant by the word beauty is known and understood by everyone. And yet not only is this not known, but after whole mountains of books have been written on the subject by the most learned and profound thinkers during 150 years, ever since Baumgarten founded aesthetics in the year 1750, the question, what is beauty, remains to this day quite unsolved, and in each new work on aesthetics, it is answered in a new way. End quote. Then he summarizes what those kinds of arguments tend to lead to. He says, quote, To what do these definitions of beauty amount? not reckoning the thoroughly inaccurate definitions of beauty which fail to cover the conception of art, and which suppose beauty to consist either in utility, or in adjustment to a purpose, or in symmetry, or in order, or in proportion, or in smoothness, or in harmony of the parts, or in unity amid variety, or in various combinations of these, not reckoning these unsatisfactory attempts at objective definition, all the aesthetic definitions of beauty lead to two fundamental conceptions. The first is that beauty is something having an independent existence, existing in itself, that is one of the manifestations of the absolutely perfect, of the idea, of the spirit, of will, or of God. The other is that beauty is a kind of pleasure received by us, not having personal advantage for its object. End quote. So he's saying all of those different writers on aesthetics have these different explanations, and he lists some of them. And he says these result in two categories. One is that beauty is some kind of manifestation of some ideal, and the other is that it is a pleasure. Then he talks about this connection of the notion of beauty as pleasure to our assessment of food. 
And this is a useful analogy. He says, quote, If we say that the aim of any activity is merely our pleasure and define it solely by that pleasure, our definition will evidently be a false one. But this is precisely what has occurred in the efforts to define art. Now, if we consider the food question, it will not occur to anyone to affirm that the importance of food consists in the pleasure we receive when eating it. Everyone understands that the satisfaction of our taste cannot serve as a basis for our definition of the merits of food, and that we have therefore no right to presuppose that the dinners with cayenne pepper, Limburg cheese, alcohol, etc., to which we are accustomed and which please us, form the very best human food. And in the same way, beauty, or that which pleases us, can in no sense serve as the basis for the definition of art, nor can a series of objects which afford us pleasure serve as the model of what art should be. To see the aim and purpose of art in the pleasure we get from it is like assuming, as is done by people of the lowest moral development, for example by savages, that the purpose and aim of food is the pleasure derived when consuming it. Just as people who conceive the aim and purpose of food to be pleasure cannot recognize the real meaning of eating, so people who consider the aim of art to be pleasure cannot realize its true meaning and purpose because they attribute to an activity, the meaning of which lies in its connection with other phenomena of life, the false and exceptional aim of pleasure. People come to understand that the meaning of eating lies in the nourishment of the body only when they cease to consider that the object of that activity is pleasure, and it is the same with regard to art. People will come to understand the meaning of art only when they cease to consider that the aim of that activity is beauty, i.e. pleasure. The acknowledgement of beauty, i.e. of a certain kind of pleasure received from art, as being the aim of art not only fails to assist us in finding a definition of what art is, but on the contrary, by transferring the question into a region quite foreign to art, into metaphysical, psychological, physiological, and even historical discussions as to why such a production pleases one person and such another displeases or pleases someone else, it renders such definition impossible. And since discussions as to why one man likes pears and another prefers meat do not help towards finding a definition of what is essential in nourishment, so the solution of questions of taste in art, to which the discussions on art involuntarily come, not only does not help to make clear what this particular human activity which we call art really consists in, but renders such elucidation quite impossible until we rid ourselves of a conception which justifies every kind of art at the cost of confusing the whole matter, end quote. So he's saying that just as the purpose of food is not pleasure but nourishment, the purpose of art is not pleasure, that is beauty in this context, but something else that we're going to get to. And he says that talking about taste does not clarify art any more than talking about taste clarifies nourishment. People can prefer different foods, but that doesn't change which one is nourishing. And this use of an analogy can be flawed, because analogies can sit nicely in your mind, the way that I think this one does, and still not track with reality. It might be the case that if we had some omniscient view of what art actually is, it might turn out that this metaphor is not useful at all, and is in fact confusing. It messes up the matter. Even though it looks like it makes sense, it might turn out that it doesn't actually reflect what's going on. But for now, we can just take this for granted and see where he goes with it and say, yeah, there might be some kind of a parallel there between the way that we relate to food and the way we relate to art. And this next section that I'm going to read is a little long, but this is the first place where he says flat out what his view of art is. He says that it's not a pleasure, but it's a condition of life. It's a form of communication between people. It's something that connects people to each other. And he means this in a technical way, not in a nebulous way. That similar to speech, as 
words transmit thoughts in the same way art is the thing that allows us to transmit feelings to each other. And that this is not something we just do for fun. It has a very particular and important social function. Tolstoy writes, quote, The inaccuracy of all these definitions arises from the fact that in them all, as also in the metaphysical definitions, the object considered is the pleasure art may give and not the purpose it may serve in the life of man and of humanity. In order correctly to define art, it is necessary, first of all, to cease to consider it as a means to pleasure and to consider it as one of the conditions of human life. Viewing it in this way, we cannot fail to observe that art is one of the means of intercourse between man and man. Every work of art causes the receiver to enter into a kind of relationship both with him who produced or is producing the art and with all those who simultaneously, previously, or subsequently receive the same artistic impression. Speech, transmitting the thoughts and experiences of men, serves as a means of union among them, and art acts in a similar manner. The peculiarity of this latter means of intercourse, distinguishing it from intercourse by means of words, consists in this, that whereas by words a man transmits his thoughts to another, by means of art he transmits his feelings. The activity of art is based on the fact that a man, receiving through his sense of hearing or sight another man's expression of feeling, is capable of experiencing the emotion which moved the man who expressed it. And, skipping ahead a little, he gives examples of the contagion of laughter, of tears, of anger, and we can also note that courage and fear are similar. All these things, if you see somebody else experiencing them, immediately it has an effect on you. If you see someone laughing, it might make you laugh. If you see someone acting bravely or fearfully, it might make you feel something similar. And then back to Tolstoy. If a man infects another or others directly, immediately by his appearance or by the sounds he gives vent to at the very time he experiences the feeling, if he causes another man to yawn when he himself cannot help yawning, or to laugh or cry when he himself is obliged to laugh or cry, or to suffer when he himself is suffering, that does not amount to art. Art begins when one person, with the object of joining another or others to himself in one and the same feeling, expresses that feeling by certain external indications. End quote. And he gives the example of a boy telling a story about how he saw a wolf and he was scared. Or if he doesn't tell the story of it specifically happening, but he wants to express his fear of wolves, and so he tells a story about a wolf that is frightening, in order to convey that, he says, that is art. And he goes on, quote, And just in the same way, it is art if a man, having experienced either fear or suffering or the attraction of enjoyment, whether in reality or in imagination, expresses these feelings on canvas or in marble so that others are infected by them. And it is also art if a man feels or imagines to himself feelings of delight, gladness, sorrow, despair, courage, or despondency, and the transition from one to another of these feelings and expresses these feelings by sounds so that the hearers are infected by them and experience them as they were experienced by the composer. The feelings with which the artist infects others may be most various, very strong or very weak, very important or very insignificant, very bad or very good. Feelings of love for native land, self-devotion and submission to fate or to God expressed in a drama, raptures of lovers described in a novel, feelings of voluptuousness expressed in a picture, courage expressed in a triumphal march, merriment evoked by a dance, humor evoked by a funny story, the feeling of quietness transmitted by an evening landscape or by a lullaby, or the feeling of admiration evoked by a beautiful arabesque. It is all art. If only the spectators or auditors are infected by the feelings which the author has felt, it is art. 
to evoke in oneself a feeling one has once experienced, and having evoked it in oneself then, by means of movements, lines, colors, sounds, or forms expressed in words, so to transmit that feeling that others may experience the same feeling, this is the activity of art. Art is a human activity, consisting in this, that one man consciously, by means of certain external signs, hands on to others feelings he has lived through, and that other people are infected by these feelings and also experience them. Art is not, as the metaphysicians say, the manifestation of some mysterious idea of beauty or God. It is not, as the aesthetical physiologists say, a game in which man lets off his excess of stored-up energy. It is not the expression of man's emotions by external signs. It is not the production of pleasing objects. And above all, it is not pleasure. But it is a means of union among men, joining them together in the same feelings and indispensable for the life and progress towards well-being of individuals and of humanity. As thanks to man's capacity to express thoughts by words, every man may know all that has been done for him in the realms of thought by all humanity before his day, and can, in the present, thanks to his capacity to understand the thoughts of others, become a sharer in their activity, and can himself hand on to his contemporaries and descendants the thoughts he has assimilated from others, as well as those which have arisen within himself. So, thanks to man's capacity to be infected with the feelings of others by means of art, all that is being lived through by his contemporaries is accessible to him, as well as the feelings experienced by men thousands of years ago. And he has also the possibility of transmitting his own feelings to others. If people lacked this capacity to receive the thoughts conceived by the men who preceded them, and to pass on to others their own thoughts, men would be like wild beasts. And if men lacked this other capacity of being infected by art, people might be almost more savage still, and above all, more separated from and more hostile to one another. And therefore, the activity of art is a most important one, as important as the activity of speech itself, and as generally diffused. This special importance has always been given by all men to that part of this activity which transmits his feelings flowing from their religious perception, and this small part of art they have specifically called art, attaching to it the full meaning of the word. End quote. In this next section, he's talking about the role of religion in art, or maybe the role of art in religion. And by religion, he doesn't only mean Christianity or even the various belief systems that we usually call religions. But he's talking about the dominant moral system of an age, a society's views at a given time on what is good and bad, and then how art fits into those views, how it can be in at least four categories. One is transmitting effectively the feelings that are viewed as desirable by that value system. The other is doing that ineffectively. The first category being good art, the second category being bad art. But then he also talks about art which transmits feelings neither run in support of or against the value system of an age. That is, they don't transmit feelings either that the value system values or that it repudiates. And so that art is just ignored. And then you have art that transmits feelings that directly oppose the value system. And that art is acknowledged only to censure it. Tolstoy writes, Quote, if, as was the case among the Greeks, the religion places the meaning of life in earthly happiness, in beauty and in strength, then art successfully transmitting the joy and energy of life would be considered good art. But art which transmitted feelings of effeminacy or despondency would be bad art. If the meaning of life is seen in the well-being of one's nation, 
or in honoring one's ancestors and continuing the mode of life led by them, as was the case among the Romans and the Chinese respectively, than art transmitting feelings of joy at sacrificing one's personal well-being for the common weal, or at exalting one's ancestors and maintaining their traditions would be considered good art. But art expressing feelings contrary to this would be regarded as bad. If the meaning of life is seen in freeing oneself from the yoke of animalism, as is the case among the Buddhists, then art successfully transmitting feelings that elevate the soul and humble the flesh will be good art. And all that transmits feelings strengthening the bodily passions will be bad art. In every age, and in every human society, there exists a religious sense, common to that whole society, of what is good and what is bad. And it is this religious conception that decides the value of the feelings transmitted by art. Therefore, among all nations, art which transmitted feelings considered to be good by this general religious sense was recognized as being good and was encouraged. But art which transmitted feelings considered to be bad by this general religious conception was recognized as being bad and was rejected. All the rest of the immense field of art by means of which people communicate one with another was not esteemed at all and was only noticed when it ran counter to the religious conception of its age and then merely to be repudiated, end quote. And just briefly, he says elsewhere, quote, art is a human activity having for its purpose the transmission to others of the highest and best feelings to which men have risen, end quote. And I wanted to include that one because there he very explicitly says highest and best feelings. It's not the transmission just of any ordinary feeling, but of more elevated feelings. And then we can talk about what elevated is. But I was glad when I saw that qualifier because when I was reading this, I was thinking about how there's art that transmits a feeling effectively, but it might be a very base feeling. And I was hoping that Tolstoy wasn't going to say that the subject matter is unimportant. What matters is the effectiveness of this transmission. And fortunately, he is not saying that. Both here and in other places, he clarifies what he means. In this next section, he's talking about the future development of technology and its effect on art. And one of the things he had been saying up to now is that the art of his time was largely an elite art. It was only enjoyed and understood by a few people. And true art needs to be universal. And we'll get into that, but let's look at the technology thing first. Here he's saying that some people in his time were saying that someday technology and the redistribution of labor will make it so you don't need this underclass of artists, basically, to produce art for the upper class, that everybody will be able to enjoy the art, and so then you'll have gotten over this problem. And Tolstoy doesn't think that this is possible. I'll read the section first. And toward the end of this passage, he uses some language that to our ear might sound very communist and Marxist. And I don't know if Tolstoy had read Marx, but he's generally taken to be not communist, but Christian anarchist, with which there's some overlap somehow, even though the communist system involves a very powerful state and an anarchist system would involve no state. But the two ideologies purport to be answering some of the same questions, and so they sometimes use similar language. Tolstoy writes, quote, to the remark that if our art is the true art, everyone should have the benefit of it. The usual reply is that if not everybody at present makes use of existing art, the fault lies not in the art, but in the false organization of society. That one can imagine to oneself in the future a state of things in which physical labor will be partly superseded by machinery, partly lightened by its just distribution, and that labor for the production of art will be taken in turns. That there is no need for some people always to sit below the stage moving the decorations, winding up the machinery, working at the piano or French horn, and setting type and printing books. 
but that the people who do all this work might be engaged only a few hours per day and in their leisure time might enjoy all the blessings of art. That is what the defenders of our exclusive art say, but I think they do not themselves believe it. They cannot help knowing that fine art can arise only on the slavery of the masses of the people and can continue only as long as that slavery lasts, and they cannot help knowing that only under conditions of intense labor for the workers can specialists, writers, musicians, dancers, and actors, arrive at that fine degree of perfection to which they do attain or produce their refined works of art. And only under the same conditions can there be a fine public to esteem such productions. Free the slaves of capital, and it will be impossible to produce such refined art. End quote. And such instances have already come up a few times on the podcast, but one of the delights of reading old books is that you get to see people's predictions about the future, what they think the future is going to be like, and how those panned out. And sometimes they're pretty close, sometimes it seems like they're too soon to tell that we might be on the path that they were talking about, but not enough time has passed, and sometimes it seems that they're dead wrong. And I wouldn't say that Tolstoy is dead wrong here, but I think he would have acknowledged that he was not anticipating video recording and widespread audio recording. There was some audio recording at this time, but it was very limited. And he certainly wasn't anticipating the internet. And so now with something like YouTube, you can pull up almost any notable theater play you can think of, almost any piece of classical music you can think of, a lot of literature that's in the public domain, and many other things. And these are now widely available to the masses. You don't have to be among the wealthiest in society to have access to them. And I don't want to stay on this point for too long because I want him to say something about art being able to or failing to communicate with the masses, which is an adjacent point here. So let's wait till we get to one of those and then we'll talk a little bit more about it. And expanding on this previous technological point that he made, he talks about first the symbolists, as we call them now, and he gives a number of examples from poets of whom I had not heard, but when I looked them up, I found them mostly to be now identified as symbolists. And he gives examples and he points out how confusing or unintelligible the poetry is that you can't figure out what they're talking about. He says about one of them, quote, who went out? Who came in? Who is speaking? Who died? All the other productions of these poets are equally unintelligible or can only be understood with great difficulty and then not fully, end quote. And then he says that there are hundreds of poets doing this at least, and that their books are published, and people go to a lot of work to set the type, because remember in those days there were no computers, people were physically putting little metal letters on a page to set up pages of a book. So to print a book was more physical work than it is now. And he says that this dynamic is not limited only to poetry, but is also found in painting, in music, and drama that they're producing these unintelligible things at very great labor cost, and hardly anyone is benefiting from them. In fact, maybe they're causing harm. And I'm very sympathetic to this concern about wasted energy. I think a lot of energy is wasted on dumb things. And he was probably reasonably right about certain things. Not that artists being remembered or not is the best measure of their art, but when I looked up the names of the poets that he listed, none of them seemed to have really lasted a long time in a significant way. If you were into French symbolist poetry in the late 19th century, then I'm sure you know those names, and maybe there was some good stuff in there. But probably on the whole, if the guy who wrote War and Peace can't make heads or tails of your poetry, then you might be on the wrong path. And now I say that, but I've made a problem for myself because one thing that Tolstoy makes 
perfectly clear is that he doesn't like Beethoven's late period. He doesn't like Wagner. He doesn't like Richard Strauss. He doesn't like the music that was being written during his time. And he specifically singles out the Ninth Symphony and talks about that for a while. And he even writes something like, I can hear the reader saying now, what? The Ninth Symphony is not good art? And I say certainly that it is not. It's something like that. And he says, I've laid out my reasoning for why I think something is or isn't art and why I think it is or isn't good art. And Beethoven's Ninth Symphony does not meet that standard. And so the reasonable answer then is not to go back and change my reasoning so that a certain piece of art fits into the category of good art. The honest thing to do is to say, well, that one doesn't fit into the category. And he says that not only Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, but as I mentioned, Beethoven's late period, which was, as he says, as Beethoven was going deaf or was entirely deaf, he wrote music that was harmonically a little more challenging for that period. If you listen to it now, unless you have a trained ear, you might not really be able to hear what was different about the late period from Beethoven's earlier stuff. But for the time, some of it was challenging, and it was definitely anticipating later 19th century harmony like Brahms and Wagner and some other guys. And so we ought to, or I ought to be careful about going along with Tolstoy dismissing certain French poets because he also doesn't like these German musicians whom I like a lot. And this little book is interesting because, as I said, he makes a clear case for what he thinks. And some of it makes a lot of sense. And some of it seems to possibly just be that this was a guy writing when he was around 70. And he might have just not liked what the music of the time was. He didn't like where things were going. And that's probably pretty common. Not to say that change is always good and old people just don't know how to get on board. I'm not saying that at all, and I don't think that. But he comes up against this wall that he articulates, which is, on the one hand, I have art that I like that the common people don't like. But I say, and Tolstoy is saying this, but I say they just don't understand it because they're not able to. But this is good art, even if they don't know that it's good art. But then what is to stop someone else from using that same logic against me? Oh, you don't like the music of Richard Strauss just because you don't get it, because you're not in the club. You don't understand it. And he says, I don't like it when people use that argument against me, but at the same time, I'm using it against these other people. And he says that the problem is you could have increasingly small concentric circles that go up to a point where there's just one person. You could just have one person saying, I'm making my art for myself, and if no one else understands it, who cares? And he says some people at that time are doing that. And that's a dead end. You can't have art go in that direction. And this is a good point. It's possible that art kind of went off the rails in the 20th century because of exactly this problem. And his answer is to pivot toward a kind of universalism in art that is very clearly informed by his Christianity, and he explains it in those terms also. He doesn't do it in a preachy way. It's pretty effective how he does it. It's the kind of thing that if somebody were a devout Christian and an artist, they should definitely read this book because they would love it. And not to say that he's talking about Christianity throughout the whole book. It's really one section. So if you don't come at it from that angle, this is still an interesting book to read. But if you do, it has that bonus. And for me in my life, I get what he's talking about because a little bit about my life here. I studied music in a pretty serious way when I was younger, and I went to a conservatory for a little while. And then I left for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons was that in high school, I had been writing and performing a certain kind of music that I really liked a lot. And then when I got to the conservatory, 
there were clear signals from all around that the only suitable kind of new music, meaning music whose composer was still alive and the piece might have been written sometime in the last five or ten years, that was acceptable or prestigious had to sound bad to the ordinary ear, basically, was the requirement. And obviously, I'm simplifying this a lot, but the net result of all of the bells and whistles that they would put on explaining why the music had to be a certain way was that if an ordinary person came off the street and listened to the music, they would say, what the heck is this? It was as if the requirement for it was that it had to be inaccessible to ordinary people. And that was the precondition of art. And I wasn't 70 years old, I was 18 and 19. So this was not me being a curmudgeon and not understanding what these kids are doing today. It was a sincere reaction to it. And there's a lot of 20th century music that I like. I'm not going to get into a whole thing about the history of music. I'm just using this example from my own life to explain that I know what Tolstoy is worried about here. Because to write music that is both accessible to the public, meaning a non-musician can enjoy it, and also is artful and required some skill to write, is not only possible, but it is maybe the ideal. And maybe that's what Tolstoy was getting at. Maybe I just answered my own question. But let me keep going anyway. And these new modes of writing music were sometimes a way, not always, but were sometimes a way for unskilled musicians or lazy musicians to write music that seemed impressive, but there was no real way to evaluate it. If we all agree on the terms by which we're going to evaluate a piece of music, it's very easy to evaluate it. Does it sound good? Does it make me feel something? Does it have some intricacies to it? I don't know. I'm not going to list here what I think the metrics for a good piece of music are. But if that's part of it, if the sound of it is part of it, then anybody in the audience can go, oh, I didn't like that one, or I liked it, or whatever. And the composer is under more pressure to make something that the audience is going to respond to in a positive way. If he's hiding behind this new set of values that has as part of it, you have to be very smart to understand my art, then the audience is kind of bullied in a way, and they don't want to say, well, it sounded bad. I didn't like it. The only thing that it made me feel was that I was bored for an hour. And so people will get the sense that, oh, I'm supposed to think that this is smart music or something. And then afterwards, they'll react according to that. And so then somebody who is less skilled or has done less work in trying to prepare their music can hide behind this social mechanism. And I'm not saying that everybody who writes music in a certain style is doing it carelessly or that it's not worth anything. But I'm saying that kind of music offers more cover for that kind of person. Now, the problem with this, with all of this, is that Tolstoy says that art should be accessible to the masses for it to be good art, that the metric of art is the extent to which it transmits a feeling. It makes the listener feel something. And if the listener or reader has not felt anything, then the art has not done its job and the artist has not done their job. The problem is that what Tolstoy couldn't see and what experiment was kind of run in the 20th century is that if you have the masses, the crowd, the public, the hoi polloi, the ordinary people as the metric, as the barometer for art, if you say that if it's accessible to more people, then it's better art, or if it's accessible to fewer people, then it's worse art. And Tolstoy doesn't say that exactly, but he says it a little bit. Then what you end up with is that the Marvel superhero movies are the greatest art of the 21st century. And Tolstoy would say, well, those had a huge amount of promotion. This was not an organic process by which a piece of art like a folk song was slowly shaped by a community of people and it took its final form and now everybody really likes it. It was this highly synthetic, forced 
artificial thing that was basically an investment in the attentional stock market. They put in a bunch of money, assuming that they could get a certain amount of attention and make a profit from it. He'd say, that's not at all what I'm talking about. And he might say that all of Hollywood is artificial in the same way. They are not taking the temperature of what people want and just giving them exactly that. They are sort of doing that and also promoting certain things. And if they're the only game in town, there's no other place that's making a different kind of movie. There's no Nashville cinema industry or something. Then people have to go to Hollywood for their movies, but that doesn't mean that that's what people actually like. And I get what he's saying. One of the things he talks about is that folk tales and folk songs and folk art are sometimes the best art because they are very sincere. They convey a feeling. They're very efficient. They don't have unnecessary details and displays of virtuosity, whether in music or in writing, in storytelling. They're like water. And this was something that came up in the Theodore Storm book. There was that nice passage where he was talking about how a folk song forms. And he was saying, they're not written by one person. They kind of rise out of a community. For some reason, the analogy that I think of is the shape that a river gradually takes by water rushing over a landscape. And then it slowly carves out the shape of the land in a certain way that naturally makes sense. There was a reason why the water went there, but then it also has its own effect. It carves out its path. And that a folk song might develop in a similar way, that it started in one form and then somebody added a part, and then people liked that addition, and so then they started singing it in that way, and the result is this very organic thing that's pleasing in the way that water is pleasing. Again, not that all folk songs are really great. Some are very pleasant, but I know my dad gives the example of how his dad, when they were going on long car trips, and they had the whole family in the car, his dad would be driving and playing the harmonica and singing these American folk songs that a lot of them were about train wrecks. And some of them were very violent. Now, those songs, I don't know if they meet the criterion that I just laid out about how a folk song develops organically. Those might have just been written by somebody. But the point is, I know that there are examples of folk songs that are unpleasant in some way. But again, the trouble is, the Sistine Chapel, which I imagine Tolstoy would value, it being an example of magnificent Christian art, and I think he lists Michelangelo as an artist that he likes, but that's about as far from folk art as you can be. Though now that I think of it, this actually kind of fits into his definition as well. What he would probably say to that is that the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is all religious. It's all religious imagery that an ordinary person who came in would understand it more or less immediately. It's very big, so they'd have to look at different parts of it to get each part. But when they looked at it, they would be able to comprehend it and they would be filled with a very powerful religious feeling. So that's actually kind of a slam dunk for Tolstoy. And this is one of the great things about this little book is that you often think that you have found something, some contradiction. And then if you think about it a little bit more, it actually turns out that maybe he was right. And I still wouldn't say that I go with Tolstoy's definition of art wholesale, but he makes some excellent points. And he articulates this problem, as I said, where you can't have art getting increasingly esoteric so that nobody except one person can understand it. But I think you also can't go in the other direction, which is to say that art is what everybody enjoys the most. That is at best pop art, and it's more likely just the outcome of decades of advertising and signaling in movies and TV shows and stuff. And one way that people try to get around this, and I think this is a very common view today, and somebody very close to me defended this view very vociferously. The first is that this idea that you can have these 
pockets of art. You can have different sections of art. This is how a lot of people understand art today, that there's the heavy metal community, and there's the digital art community, and there's the jazz community, and so on. And that certain people have different tastes, and within that taste, they discuss what they like and don't like and who's the best. And the trouble with having so many different communities, not just the big ones like I listed, but increasingly specific ones, is that you can get to this idea that anything is art, that feces smeared on a canvas is art or other bodily fluids. And not only is that art, but there is nothing in an oil painting that resembles some real object that is superior to that. And I think that this idea is civilizational suicide. And we both really dug in on this topic and had for several hours a perfectly civil but intense discussion, and neither of us budged an inch. And the reason I think that this idea is so harmful is because if somebody smearing feces on a canvas is equivalent in merit to somebody making an oil painting that resembles a real object, why should anybody go to the trouble of trying to make something realistic? Why log the hours to learn how to do that well? The result is something that has equivalent merit to something that literally a monkey could do or an infant. Then why should I go to the trouble of learning how to do this? And the answer is that you shouldn't under that worldview. But it is civilizationally critical that people take great pains not just to make oil paintings, but to do what they do very well. This is extremely important. I don't care if you're making oil paintings or writing symphonies or farming or building bridges or whatever it is, it is very important on a wide timescale that people care a lot about trying to do their work well. Now, there's a wide discussion to be had about what doing the work well is, what the work ought to be, what we ought to be trying to be doing, but merit and there being socially acknowledged merits for something being better and worse is extremely important. And I think that this person was defending this view because he didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. He doesn't want to exclude people from making art. Everybody's welcome. Everybody can come. And he's a bit younger than me, which is certainly part of it. So I think that for a lot of people, this comes from a good place, though the people promoting the idea initially, I don't know what their intentions are. But the people who have received the idea and are conveying it onward, but they didn't originate it, I think many of them have good intentions. Or at least there's one of them who I know does. The problem is I think he's just wrong about this for reasons that are not immediately visible within art. You need a broader view of history and society and politics to understand why that view is harmful. Anyway, we've gotten a little off track. I'm sure Tolstoy would not approve of feces on canvas as art, but let's look at another passage and see what else he has to say. He writes, quote, universal art arises only when some one of the people, having experienced a strong emotion, feels the necessity of transmitting it to others. The art of the rich classes, on the other hand, arises not from the artist's inner impulse, but chiefly because people of the upper classes demand amusement and pay well for it. They demand from art the transmission of feelings that please them, and this demand artists try to meet. But it is a very difficult task for people of the wealthy classes spending their lives in idleness and luxury desire to be continually diverted by art. And art, even the lowest, cannot be produced at will, but has to generate spontaneously in the artist's inner self. And therefore, to satisfy the demands of people of the upper classes, artists have had to devise methods of producing imitations of art. And such methods have been devised. These methods are those of borrowing, imitating, striking effects, 
and interesting, end quote. And so there he's talking about the way that the demand from the upper classes for entertainment has industrialized, or he might say professionalized, art. It's made it so art is not made organically when this impulse arises in the artist, but it has to be made on demand. And artists have come up with ways for doing that. And one thing that he touches on in the next section, but he elaborates in other places, is how much of what is called art is what he would say the imitation of or borrowing from real art. So again, his basic thing is that art is a transmission of a feeling from the artist to somebody else. They've done a thing that effectively transmits a feeling. And he says that there's a lot of counterfeit art that what it does is imitates somebody else having already done that. So somebody one time used an image of a guy on a horse with a sword to convey a feeling that he felt. And maybe it was somebody like Wolfram von Eschenbach, who wrote Parseval, who was both a poet and a knight. So that's somebody who might have really organically felt that kind of courage and strength and energy and adventurousness and used this image with which he was very familiar, an armed knight on a horse. He had this experience directly from his life. But then for centuries afterwards, people used that not to convey a feeling that they had. I wouldn't say that only somebody who's ever ridden on a horse with a suit of armor can write about that topic. But if you want to use that image, it should be to answer a feeling that you're trying to convey, not this imitative art that Tolstoy is talking about, which is that you've just gotten this sense that art often has guys on horseback in it, so I better put that in there. That you're imitating somebody else's sincere act of conveying a feeling. And I was right, I've barely gotten through half of the passages that I pulled out. If this was interesting to you, I encourage you to read this book. It's not long, but I want to wrap up with some of my own thoughts about it. One of the things when I was getting a sense of his basic thesis about the connection between art and the transmission of feeling was I had this resistance to it because I was going, well, feelings are this fluffy thing, and I don't want to think that art is just making people emotional. It's making somebody sad or it's making them happy. Because in our day-to-day life, I think that emotion is generally a distraction. It's a kind of cognitive static that can divert you from making a good decision or making a good evaluation of something. It mostly just distorts your perception. And trying to have a clear perception of what's going on is among the best thing that humans can try to do. And emotion is something that detracts from that. And so all of my priors make me want to think about art not as something that stokes emotion. But I think it's worth it to make a distinction between emotion and feeling. And I think it would be wrong to conflate feeling as Tolstoy uses it with emotion as I just described it. I would say that emotion is a subcategory of feeling. And feeling maybe is a bad word. I wish we had a better word for it. But the way that Tolstoy uses the word feeling includes, for example, the feeling of quietness transmitted by an evening landscape. That's not really an emotion. That's not anger or happiness. I guess you could say it's calmness, but you might think of calmness as the absence of emotion. It's a state that a person can be in. But more importantly than calmness is it's a specific kind of calmness. The feeling of quietness transmitted by an evening landscape is not the same as, for example, the feeling of quietness that you feel sitting on a rock next to a path in the woods when there's nobody else around. They're related, but they're not quite the same. And Tolstoy says somewhere that the way that words convey thoughts or argumentation conveys thoughts and ideas, art conveys 
feelings. And what that suggests is that he maybe thought that there are as many different feelings, what we're calling feelings, as many different ineffable sensations that are available to be sensed by a person as there are thoughts that can be articulated by words that we're not talking about the collection of a dozen or so emotions that you could list and stoking those using oil painting and music. We're talking about a whole category of human experience with which we're all familiar. We all experience these things subjectively, though we have not necessarily all experienced all of them, and we haven't all experienced them in the same way. One person may have had very profound moments in nature, or even very subtle moments in nature where they really felt a certain thing looking at a tree. You get this sense sometimes looking at a tree that this is hardly even a separate organism. This is a hair follicle of the earth. I'm walking around on the head of this giant unified organism or whatever it might be. I'm just making one up. And somebody who has spent their entire lives in a giant city might not be familiar with that feeling at all. But aside from things like that, we're all familiar with certain feelings, with feeling calm, drinking something hot, on a cold Sunday morning, with that awkward feeling where somebody is walking towards you and they've greeted you and you can't remember what their name is. Tens of thousands or more other sensations like this that are not exactly ineffable in that they can't be described, but they can most effectively or maybe even only be described by example. Try to describe that feeling of calm from drinking something hot on a cold morning on the weekend in a way that somebody could identify it as such without using the example of the situation that you find it in. You could at best go, it's a kind of clearness and simplicity of mind where you feel comfortable and relaxed or something. And people know what those words mean, so they would kind of get the kind of feeling you're talking about, but it would not get them to that specific kind of relaxation. But anyway, there's this whole big wide section of human experience that we're all familiar with individually, but it's not that easy for us to convey these experiences to each other except through art. Tolstoy says that is the function of art. And then he gets into a thing about why this practice is important because it unifies people, brings us together around a shared feeling the way that language brings us together around a shared idea. So that's what I'll say about What is Art by Leo Tolstoy. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will send it to a thoughtful friend who you think will enjoy it as well. And go over to my website, volrathpublishing.com, and pick up a copy of the edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that I have printed. I have it at a great price, original cover art, free shipping, excellent print quality, footnotes throughout the book. Frankenstein is one of those books that I think everybody should read. It's taken as the origin of the genre of science fiction. It's as relevant today as it was when it was first published over 200 years ago. It's a forceful warning about the destructive power of technology and how easy it might be for us to build something that could destroy us. It has a lot to think about, a lot to talk about. If you haven't read it, you should absolutely order yourself a copy right now and do so. If you have, but you don't own a copy, you should order my edition so that you have this book in your home. If you have read it and you own a copy of Frankenstein, then you should order my edition as a gift for a friend or a family member. It's an excellent introduction for somebody who's open to reading old books. It makes a good, close read for somebody who's very used to it, has a lot of interesting literary and historical references. And my goal in preparing my edition was to make something that I would be glad to have on my bookshelf. And I'm glad to say that I've been able to do that. The edition of Frankenstein that I have in my library is the edition that I printed, and I'm sure it will make an excellent addition to your library as well. 
And of course, by ordering from me, you'll be supporting independent book publishing, which is something not that I value because I do it, but I do it because I value it. So I hope you'll go over and order yourself a copy right now. Farewell until next time. Take care and happy reading.